On this week's episode, Scott Boris and I talk about why we haven't flown together in a while. We, st- we stop yeah. at the cooler and we never make it to the right. hangar. Yeah, it's usually, <laughs> it's usually the, the issue. It's more fun that way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, well, we'll go fly. And they're like, well, let's, well, let's, have, let's some have some beers instead. Yeah. I got a better uh, idea. Yeah, we can, we were planning on doing this afterward. Let's just do it before and then just not, not go. And Jack Cochran tells us about some relaxing times he had as a charter pilot. I took off single pilot in a Cheyenne 1. And um, it was a low overcast day. It was in the wintertime. And I was intending to go down to Florida. I can't remember which airport, but I want to say like Fort Lauderdale. So, I mean, I was loaded with fuel. I mean, we were ready to go for a long haul. Or I was. I was empty and I was going down there to pick some other people up. I was the only guy in the plane. Yeah, right after I rotated, so brought the airplane into the air, I went to go bring the gear up in the right engine. Welcome to the Farring Podcast. Today we are covering FAR 91.103, the uh, pre-flight action requirements for uh, taking off. I'm pretty sure we have covered this before. I don't know if we made a specific episode or not. One prudent podcast host would have at least looked that up and acted like he remembered, but I, I didn't even bother to look it up. I just feel like we've talked about this before, but we have something different today. We've got Lake Erie Island flight legend Jack Cochran joining us today for the first ever host guest guest host chosen topic, which I love when the guest host chooses the topic because it makes my life a whole lot easier. <clears throat> Ryan Eckel. Um, so anyway, <laughs> welcome, Mr. Cochran. Thank you, Mr. Berger. Good to be here. Yep. And uh, so yeah, Cochran's got a good... Uh, some good takes on this so if we have done an episode on this in the past which i don't remember uh this will obviously be different because mr griffin is out he's feeling better backwise i think right scott did you get that impression or is he still yeah, I laid up i mean i don't really know he's if he pl- resolved the issue but he's going on he's recording back. he's recording uh next week Next week, what will be the listeners' next week episode um, tomorrow with us, which Scott will be gone for. So he, he should be back next week for you guys and gals who uh, miss your Lee Griffin. You got, a, um, you got any guests on for that? It's yeah, it's Eckel. It just, oh, okay. we're gonna do part two without oh, you. Okay, all right. Because well. you're worthless anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's when it comes probably, to that's no, because the the. The part two is mainly gripes Lee had that we skipped over too fast. So we oh, need okay. we needed Lee. I'd like to have yeah, you on board, yeah. but you just yeah. I won't. Make you don't care about the audience. <laughs> no, um, I guess not. FAR no FAR ninety one point one zero three pre flight action. We'll jump right into it. Each pilot in command shall, before beginning a flight, become familiar with all available information concerning that flight. This information must include. So, I mean, that's kind of a open all available information concerning the flight that's pretty broad before they even go into the specific ones yeah yeah it is and i think that you know like all like a lot of the the regulations they're they're written and they're designed to help you and tell you what you need to have access to but that's a good way for them to say you need to know everything yeah that way yeah that way you know you do your best to try to familiarize yourself with everything that you can and then if something goes awry then they can say, well, you should have known that. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's kind of open-ended for them for the, as far as like FAA enforcement. Um, exactly. That statement. Cause you could, I mean, you could make the argument anything, whether that's reasonable or not. Like if it ever went to like court or something. Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'll stop short of saying that that's intentional on their part. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. there have been a lot of a lot of things that have happened, accidents and stuff that, like you said, do end up in court. And like as we all know, I mean, pilot error is is one of the, the deemed to be one of the largest you know causes of accidents and incidents. And so yeah, many times, as, even as a professional, you think, well, this happened or that happened. Well, how could that person really have known that or been prepared for that? And and they couldn't. I mean, we're human at the end of the day. Yeah. So after that statement, you pretty much have to know everything concerning your flight. Everything. All available information concerning the flight. Yeah, available too. That's a key word there, right? So (laughs) Yeah, so you could yeah, you could argue, I mean, somebody who's got no internet connection, you know, up in Alaska somewhere, they've you know, there's a lot of information that's not available to them. Yeah. Different than if you're sitting on a tarmac with an iPad and four flight with you know wi-fi that's a lot more information that's available to you right yep and then if you're if you're part of a team that has other people feeding information to you right so like you guys have talked about different areas of aviation private companies all the way up to airlines and you could have an entire team feeding information to you i.e like delta united right yeah i I didn't even think of that yeah Uh, Part A, for a flight under IFR or a flight not in the vicinity of an airport, weather reports and forecasts, fuel requirements, alternatives available if the planned flight cannot be completed, and any known traffic delays of which the pilot in command has been advised by ATC. So this is just IFR stuff. Like a lot of that stuff is good VFR information too, but they're spelling out specifically for IFR. They are, yep. Uh, not in the vicinity of the airport. It's basically, are you doing IFR flights in the vicinity of an airport? So sometimes, yeah. You know, even, so there are many people that do fly IFR a lot and they're reluctant to fly VFR. So we have, there are, there are times that if we can, at, at my company, which is a relatively large fractional operator, that even if we're doing a test flight in the vicinity of an airport, like we're going to be not just in the traffic pattern, but we're going to go five miles away. Uh, or 10 miles away to do some testing, we'll file an IFR flight plan for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Weather reports and forecasts. I mean, there's a lot of weather information you can get these days. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of so weather you, information, right? Yep. You legally have to consume all all of that's available to you. If you've got the internet, that could be a that's ton of information. That's impossible. Yeah. Just skip it. Just it, skip it, it is. All. Skip it all. The scaffold. Yeah, just get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, like when like people joke about when they're flying with a like a, a cargo operator, like an airnet or something. Yeah, don't don't just don't check the weather because you're going anyway. You just don't want to right. scare yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh. That's just scary. Take, just take a glance at AccuWeather and then that's all you need, really. That's all I use. Yeah. You'd be yeah, you'd be surprised actually at what you can have access to, though. Like you said, yeah. you know, in the in the age of the internet, you can get access to like, you know, of course your departure weather and then your destination and your alternate airport weather. And then you can be familiar with, you know, points en route areas that you can divert to and get a general idea as to what's going on in certain places. It might not even be like, you know, I'm going from point A to point B, let's say it's two hundred miles away or three hundred miles away. What's the general weather pattern looking like underneath me? So I may not know what the weather specifically is like at all these different airports, but I know in general which areas are VFR, uh, what areas are a quarter mile of visibility, so I can't even land there IFR, like on an instrument approach. So if I have this problem, I know that I can probably go here or here in this general area. 
if I have this other problem, then, you know, maybe I need a, a v, an area of VFR weather. So you can already start to consider, you know, if I end up having like an in-flight fire, say, and, and this may not all be applicable to, we've got a wide audience here, right? So people are doing various types of flying, but if I uh, end up having a fire in flight, I need something that I can land at immediately, right? So, you know, some areas, you know, with some in-flight emergencies that may happen or contingencies that may happen that are time critical, I may be looking for something different, Yeah, you know, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm looking in generalities kind of to avoid what Scott mentioned with, you know, trying to digest tons and tons of information. There's no way you can remember all that. So we were talking before the program started. You've been uh, pulled away from your desk more often lately and are actually jumping in and getting in some flights. At your operator, what are you what are you typically doing pre-flight wise for for your weather? Like when you're checking weather to to comply with this? Yeah, so we're that's a good question. So we use ForeFlight, which um is a really good platform. We use that for pre-flight planning. Um we have uh, a department that will it's not necessarily a full-fledged dispatch department like you would see at an airline, but we do have uh, flight planes that are filed for us. Um, we do have access to weather within that, but uh, four flights, a lot of that. So we'll concentrate uh, mainly on, you know, of course, departure weather, destination weather, and alternate weather is what we're looking at. And then we'll, we'll bring in, like you mentioned, Robin, that regulation, uh, fuel requirements are a big deal. So there's never an excuse to not have enough gas, but yeah. when you fly at operators, like, like, you know, like we're at, some of the aircraft that we fly, you, you're just not going to top the airplane off before you depart just because you can, because it actually costs you fuel to take fuel. So the more gas you take, the more gas you burn and route. So yeah, destination weather and alternate weather is a really big deal. So you want to have a really good idea as to what's going on at your destination and where you can land if something goes awry. Like if you go, if you're flying down into South Florida, there's an alternate airport every 10 miles down there, right? Rob, you oh, know yeah. that. Yep. But yeah, some places where, you know, you might be flying into a remote area and your alternate might be, you know, a hundred miles away. That happens down in the Caribbean sometimes too. Now, granted down there, the weather's always, is typically good, yeah. but the suitable airports down there may not be, especially at night, you know, you may not be able to find alternates that are close by. Uh, some areas like up in the Northeast, like up in the JFK, LaGuardia, Newark, area, you know, we'll use like a Teterboro or a White Plains. Those are big airports out there. A lot of, you know, listeners probably know about those places. Some of those airports could be 10 miles away, but it could take you 45 minutes to get to one just because of ATC routing, right? So the regulation goes into that as well. So are there any delays up there in the area? Well, in the Northeast, I mean, it's a congested piece of airspace. So you might say, well, you know, if Teterboro doesn't work, it's, you know, really close to those big airports up there in the Northeast, LaGuardia, JFK, et cetera. Hey, it's 10 miles away. Well, that's not going to take me very much gas if I can't land at Teterboro. Well, yeah, it might. It could take you could take you 45 minutes to get from that airport to your alternate airport. So all things you need to consider. I never even thought of that, the an airport being 10 minutes away, but then it, everything being so congested with ATC running you everywhere that it's not really 10 minutes away. Right. Yep. You exactly. You do a missed approach someplace because the weather ends up closing in on you. You do a missed approach procedure. You climb up to altitude and they they vector you all over the place just to get you into the next airport. And, you know, a place like that, could you declare a minimum fuel and say, I need priority? Sure. But um, you may have some splaining to do. Yeah. You know, you're, those are things that you're just expected to be aware of. So the weather reports, that's very similar, whether you're 
flying professionally or you know recreationally not recreational pilot's license but like if you're a private pilot you have a plane and you're you're running around you're for the most part you're on four flight looking up the same you know weather information you know you're probably not looking as high at altitudes if you're if you're flying you know Cessnas you're not concerned about the upper level stuff as much and then fuel requirements are the same pretty much there's different planning procedures and stuff that go in with the bigger jets alternatives mm-hmm. available if the planned flight cannot be completed did have you noticed a difference between when you were doing you know the Cessna Piper stuff and you're doing a cross country you're looking for alternatives versus now in the jets cuz you're so much higher up and then what kind of information like how is how does that change as you get into bigger bigger faster higher flying airplanes yeah, as far you're referring to, as far as like your alternatives that are available to you. Yeah, like how much, how often are you looking for alternatives? How much information are you kind of memori or looking up? Like, are you looking up no tams on like every airport on your cross country flight? I know I never really did that. I looked at some alternatives, but I wasn't looking up the no tams. I wasn't looking up whether the runway was available. Maybe you should. I didn't even. I mean, check most the, people. I, I've, I didn't even check the no tams for my. Destination airport. Yeah, well, you're a different, <laughs> you're a different case study. <laughs> if they don't, if, yeah, you know if, that's a. If they don't have a big X painted on the runway, it's good to go. Yeah, that's all you really need to look for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, I think for the en route phase of things, like you typically, like, you know, you're not looking at notums and you're not looking at any, any of the airports that are underneath you while you're en route on a regular basis. And that doesn't change whether you're flying a small aircraft on a cross country or whether you're flying a jet at 45,000 feet. A lot of that goes back to, you know, when you're, when you are flying the jet up high, you might look at those general weather patterns, you know, in the winter time, am I over like a big system that's dumping a bunch of snow that's reducing visibilities and ceilings in a large area? Destination is, is pretty similar actually. So if you're going into an airport, you know, professionally, you, you are definitely going to make sure you know what the notums are prior to going in smaller airports, which, you know, we, we actually, in the fractional world, we go into a lot of airports that typically are, are people go into them in jets. Obviously we do it, um, you know, and that jets would do it, but a lot of these airports are frequented by small airplanes. And so you don't have a tower at a lot of these places you get into the pattern and it's nothing but Cessnas and light twins. And, uh, sometimes management isn't sometimes there's nobody on site. So, Things change pretty pretty quickly. I mean, you can say, well, this airport was perfectly usable yesterday, and then right before that flight, two hours before, they may have issued a notum and they closed the only runway at the airport. Yeah. So, yeah. And then you're going to want to definitely make sure that you know the notums, what's going on at the alternate that you filed. So, yeah, yeah pretty, pretty similar, really. And, it, you know, looking back on my early career, there was a lot that now if I was to do that in a small airplane, I'd be looking at things a lot more in depth than I would have then. <laughs> so... Yeah, I haven't gone professionally with my aviation flying, but I now, when I do fly, it's a rare, I don't fly that much anymore, but when I do, I I look at a lot more stuff than I did back in the day, like if I'm doing a cross-country stuff, for example, or if I'm flying anywhere other than like locally. Like if I, sure. if I still hop in Scott's plane at his airport and go bop around the pattern or something to up my takeoffs and landings, I'm not as, you know... It's pretty straightforward with that, but we did that cross country commercial requirement. It's been yeah. years and that? years ago two now years. since we've done that. Probably, probably been two years like t- anyway. Two or two three or years ago now. Yeah. It was a while ago. 
but like we were supposed to do one every was, summer, but something happened. Yeah, we just we usually just grab the bush lights instead of yeah. walking out to the hangar. We we stop yeah. at the cooler and we never make it to right. the hangar. Yeah, it's usually, it's usually the, the issue. It's more fun that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> like oh, we'll go flying. They're like, oh, let's well, let's have, let's some, have beers. some beers instead. Yeah. I got a better yeah. idea. Yeah, we can, we were planning on doing this afterward. Let's just do it before and then just not not go. Yeah, you <laughs> got to open the yeah, hangar yeah. door. You got to pull that thing out. It we got to pre-flight you, it. That seems like a lot. Walk, you got to walk like two or three hundred feet just to get to yeah. it. <laughs> it's yeah. too much work, man. It is. Yeah. It's too much work. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, one thing that we use, and I think this would be beneficial. I, I would probably use something like this now. If I don't have a lot of time to do recreational flying, but you know, the, the studies behind like, you know, aeronautical decision-making and how you identify threats has actually gotten really big. And so at my company, and I know a lot of other companies are doing this now, we, we do a lot of briefings, right? So we're operating in a crew environment, but a lot of the same information could be used even if you're flying single single pilot. So we we call a lot of what we do threat forward. So like threat forward briefings. And so we're constantly trying to identify threats. So a lot of the information that, that's found within that reg could present a threat to your flight. And we're constantly trying to like, you know, just identify those threats, whether it's like on the taxi out while we're doing a departure, while we're en route while we're doing an approach, we're constantly trying to identify what's out there that could hurt us as opposed to just, you know, going through the briefing. So anybody out there who's flown IFR, you're familiar with like a jet plate, Rob Scott, you guys know what those look like, just a Jefferson instrument approach plate. Yeah, I don't, I use the government ones for most of my training because those are, those are a bit pricey, but yeah, I've at the Sandusky airport, I looked at a few of those because they had that subscription back then. Yeah. So the government charts are the same, you know, like they offer like a strip on the top. And so, so many people are like, okay, you know, let's do a briefing, whether I'm briefing myself or briefing an, um, a first officer or as a first officer briefing the captain, let me just read all this mundane crap that we all know. And so when you do that, like, you know, you're like, well, you, you either lose the person sitting next to you because you're just droning on and on going through all this stuff that both people know. And then you know, you miss something that's big just because you're like, oh, okay, let's just do the briefing. Da 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 da. As opposed to saying, okay, we both shot this approach, you know, ten times in the last two months. Is there anything different about it? Was there a notum that we talked about or that we looked at in the pre-flight planning aspect that we need to make sure that both of us are aware of? You know, things like yeah, that. You know, if that seems more effective than the checklist of briefing. You know, that you've done a yeah. thousand times. Yeah. And here's a good one too. So I've actually got a, a card that we use at my company in front of me on we, on what I call the threat forward briefing. So for a departure, so we look at threats, a plan to deal with them, and then any considerations. So here's a big one. When you take off from an airport, an emergency plan. So if I take off from that airport and I lose an engine on climb out, what am I going to do? That's something that's really good to not be thinking about when you lose the engine on climb out. You know, so am I going to, let's say you're flying a light twin. So if I lose that engine on climb out, can I still make whatever climb I have to make on the departure? If you're leaving a mountainous airport in Colorado, you have two engines that are burning. You know that you can make whatever climb gradient is required on that departure and miss the mountains. But if you lose an engine, can you do it? And the FAA is really vague on that, especially if you're not flying for hire. They say, well, no, if you lose an engine, then you just have to have a plan. So what's your plan? You know, well, don't kill myself. Okay, that's a good one. So how are you going to do that? 
So, you know, when you, before you leave, let's have a plan for what's going to happen if I happen to lose an engine. And that's something that we brief every single takeoff, whether we're leaving Port Clinton airport, where there's not a whole lot around there to hit, or whether we're leaving Aspen, we always have a plan for what's going to happen if we do lose an engine. Yeah. This is near and dear to your heart. You've lost one of two engines on takeoff, right? Coming on mm-hmm. Sandusky yeah. back in the day in a Cheyenne, right? Yeah. Gri- yeah. Yeah. Griffin flying service. Absolutely. I did. I lost an engine in a Cheyenne right after takeoff. I hadn't even brought the gear up yet. Okay. So That had to be pretty terrifying. <laughs> walk, walk us through that what happened there to drive the point home of what you just said, because you literally, this has happened to you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've been there before for sure. So yeah, I, um, I took off single pilot in a Cheyenne one and, um, it was a low overcast day. It was in the winter time and I was intending to go down to Florida. I can't remember which airport, but I want to say like Fort Lauderdale. So, I mean, I was loaded with fuel. I mean, we were ready to go for a long haul or I was, I was empty and I was going down there to pick some other people up. I was the only guy in the plane. And so I took off. That's a 3,500 foot strip. I want to say off the top of my head, I took off to the West and, um, yeah, right after I rotated, so brought the airplane into the air, I went to go bring the gear up and the right engine uh, went all the way back to idle. So in a turboprop, idle idle power is like 50%, but you get nothing. So that engine might as well be dead. And so, you know, at that point I was like, oh crap. So you're thinking about the only time that ever happens is in a flight simulator and training. So it takes a little while to figure out even that, oh crap, I really did lose an engine. We ended up you know, finding out that it was a, a system issue. So in turboprops, there are systems that keep the propeller from overspeeding. And if two of those systems fail, the last ditch effort of the airplane to stop like, you know, massive propeller damage is just to knock the engine power all the way back to idle. So that ended up being what happened. But yeah, I made a right-hand turn, not really at my, the right engine failed. So I ended up going out over the bay. So I was really low. So luckily for me, there was nothing out there to actually hit. Yeah, But I ended up, yeah, taking care of that problem, we feathered the propeller, which, you know, makes it produce essentially no drag. So I was able to climb back out and land back at Griffing. But yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, that's something that I had considered the possibility. I had trained for that to happen. I mean, obviously I was successful. I'm still here. Yeah. But, um, you know, those are things that the more experience you gain, that should have been something that I should have gone through in my head in detail. If I lose an engine on takeoff, this is what's going to happen. You know, am I going to come back to Griffing? with a 35 foot runway that was icy actually, as I remember it, (laughs) or am I going to go to Port Clinton or am I going to go someplace else with a longer runway, but at least to have that fresh in my mind so that when I lost the engine, it was more of like, okay, here we go. Instead of, okay. Yeah. Had you, I mean, this was back in when you were in your twenties doing this, right? Had you thought about that prior to takeoff? Were you kind of dealing with it on the fly? I was dealing with it on the fly, man. So I had gotten trained in that Cheyenne. So that would have been, I want to say like early 2006. So I was 24 years old. Yeah, I'd flown a lot of airplanes at Griffin, done island flying. I'd flown some light piston powered twins out there. But yeah, I had been to school for that Cheyenne. And I want to say I hadn't touched it for like a month. Okay. And they said, okay, let's just, you know, you're going to go down to Florida. You're going to, you know, pick these people up. And I want to say, come back into Sandusky, but yeah, I got in the airplane and I was taxiing out and I'm just like, okay, going through everything in my head. But I don't think I really had considered, you know, that, that, I mean, I was trained to deal with it, but I hadn't, I didn't definitely didn't have it fresh in my mind. Yeah. I just, that's crazy to me. As soon as you started talking about the engine shutting down potentially, I'm like, didn't that actually happen to you? That's why I brought it up. (laughs) Oh yeah. Been there. Yeah. And, And yeah, you're, you're welcome to keep it in. I mean, it's probably something valuable for people to, people can learn from that. You know, I mean, we, we, 
we learn from ourselves and it's better if we learn from other people, especially in aviation. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Uh, uh, any known trap part a, let me go through it here. We knocked out weather fuel requirements, alternatives available, uh, known traffic delays. I mean, that's pretty much unless ATC tell you that this for, for flight has a feature too, where you can notice known traffic delays. They'll put it in, or is that, or am I confusing that with something else? It's been years since I've even had a four flight subscription. Yeah, the the four flight subscription that we use doesn't. I, I don't believe that they actually do talk about traffic delays on there. But if you if you go to like you know if you're coming out of an airport that has congested area, especially if you're if you're flying IFR, you're going to know about it beforehand. You know they, I guess that comes in a lot of forms. And it does happen down in uh, in South Florida a fair bit. You know any place where you've got a lot of traffic congestion, or if you're going like into a congested area, they may be doing like these things called ground stops, or um, you know, expected departure clearance times or something where you're going to know, uh, pretty readily, even if you don't, even if you don't know it pre-flight planning wise, when you actually sign on with air traffic control, um, for a departure clearance, you're probably going to know about those things. I, I know one, one, one area that it does happen in at certain times where you may not know about it's down in the Caribbean, which, you know, if you've got some listeners on there that fly down in the Caribbean, at certain times down there at those island airports, you will have traffic delays, and those are not nearly as readily advertised. Yeah. So that can cause fuel issues, and I've been there too. Yeah. Because yeah, you're going over water for a while, hit, trying to hit a spot, and then if you're delayed, that could cause. I could imagine that cause some issues. Yeah, it does. And so you know, if you're out there flying in jets, we plan on basically being able to do a descent. You know, pretty rapid descent. So we we figure that we're not going to be burning a lot of gas when we're on our way down. But yeah, there are certain island airports down there uh, in the Caribbean where they bring you down really low, really early. So you could end up chewing through a lot of gas uh, that you're not expecting to chew through. And then you end up, you know, your plan is to land at a at an island airport. Like the Providenciales comes to mind down in the Turks and Caicos, like just north of Haiti. Yeah. Where you can end up down low for 75 or 100 miles in a line of six or seven people going into that airport. And it's one runway and no taxiways. And so, you know, you start thinking about those things, right? So going back to the pre-flight planning, one runway and no taxiways. What happens if somebody blows a tire on the runway? Yeah. Right. They shut the entire airport down. And so going back to that reg, are you expected to know that? Absolutely. Right. So if you end up not having enough gas to get to an alternate, which could be a long way away, what are you going to do? Landing in the water is never a good option. I've thought about that before i don't want to do that even though they say the water down there is warm but it's still got sharks in it so (laughs) yeah i don't mind sharks as long as i'm down scuba diving with them i don't like being on the surface not being able to see them (laughs) exactly (laughs) hopefully you scare them away when you hit the water i probably wouldn't want to do either yeah i just avoid unless you got floats on the bottom and you're planning on landing it i don't i don't want to do a water landing yeah, for sure. I mean, I've actually been in a situation before, um, coming from Teterboro up in the Northeast and landing down in the Providenciales in, in the winter time when there was a festival going on down there. And we ended up down at, uh, at 6,000 feet, like a hundred miles prior to the destination, just like I told you about. And we had that conversation in the cockpit where like, we're running a little bit low on gas. Well, we should still land it at, at minimums. Well, where's our alternate? Well, we didn't file one because the weather was good. Okay, well, we didn't have an alternate on file and we didn't take adequate fuel. So we're trying to think about that stuff down over the water, you know, coming in in this line of traffic. And we eventually came to the conclusion where like, you know, 
if things don't play out the way we want, if one of these airplanes blows a tire on the runway, we could be in a lot of trouble. So we were actually thinking maybe we should declare a fuel emergency, Yeah. which we ended up not doing. We landed with not very much gas. I mean, we were still legal, but we got ourselves to a point within like a pretty small period of time where it was, everything's fine to, do we need to declare an emergency? And yeah. that's, you know, that's not something that you should be doing. You know, I don't think we necessarily did anything wrong, but yet, you know, now that I think back on it, not even with hindsight, should I have, should I have been aware of that? Absolutely. I should have. Yeah. I did. I remember the only time I've been worried about fuel flying, knock on wood, is uh, that 250 nautical mile leg you got to do for the commercial requirement. Yeah. That two I, by 250. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, Lee explained to me, I guess it's not like I could have made stops as long as that I, I could have broken that up into two as long as the third one was 250 away from the first one or something. I don't know. We got into a discussion Makes sense, about yeah. that on a previous episode. But I had planned the 250 and a 150 just nonstop out towards like Indiana or something from Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember you got a headwind that can be a little sketchy. Yeah. I, I planned it all out perfect where it's like, okay, I got a half an hour fuel reserve. All the numbers work out perfect where I got my half hour legal based on all of my, you know, E6B wind direction and velocity and, you know, my fuel burn at my expected RPM, expected airspeed, all that good stuff. It's like, okay, it's perfect. And then like, well, you go up that planning, then you go in the real world and it's like, I'm redoing calculations like towards the end of the flight. Like, okay, this is, you know, and that's just that feeling when you've now doing fuel planning, trying to get to the closest runway, you know, to you to make sure everything's going to be good. That's not a good feeling at all. I don't like redoing that planning in flight. That's why I've ever since I've always added way more fuel than I needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure, man. I mean, it, you, you, you never, you never want to be short on gas. That's a, that's a really sick feeling. And you know, and you, you know, then that's, that's a perfect thing, right? So like when you get yourself into that situation, like you can sense the threat, like even if you can't put words to it, when you start to feel that empty feeling, and that's actually something that's been like quantified and written, um, like within threat and error management an empty feeling yeah. like this just doesn't feel good. Right. I like anytime anybody's flying, anybody who's listening, if you start to feel like that, that's bad. You need to, especially if you're in flight, you know, you really need to be thinking about why do I feel like that? Yeah. You know, because there's a reason for it. Scott, have you ever been in a position where you like you were worried about it? No, um, not where like I thought, oh, I got to cut this short or got to find a different airport. I've never never been there, but there was a time when I was—I don't even think I had my private yet. No, I didn't have my private. I was working on my private, and I was flying with another guy who was a lot more experienced than me. He wasn't a flight instructor, but we just went flying together. And I had just soloed not not that long ago, so like. He was like giving me a flight lesson, basically, even though he wasn't a flight instructor, but he had flown like his whole life. So I was just getting advice from him and I should have been watching the fuel and he should have been watching the fuel. But we both thought that the other one was paying attention to that. And like I was just going about my flight. It was basically a flight lesson for me. And neither one of us were watching. And we got back and realized that later there was like two gallons left. <laughs> Jeez. Woo. Yeah. So yeah. That, that could that could have been bad. Uh so, yeah. so never never assume that somebody else is paying attention to the fuel, I guess, would be the moral of that story. But yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Amen, man. Or that, that's a good point, yeah. man. I mean, so yeah, the fuel or anything else, like that's a big deal. Yeah. A lot of accidents and incidents have happened as a result of that. Well, I thought he was two, paying attention to that or I thought right. he knew that. Yeah. Two gallons. Or she knew that. Ex- yeah. Two gallons might be an exaggeration, but it, it was pretty low. It, it was lower than it should have been. Yeah. There was a time when I was working line yeah. service and a guy rented a plane and when he brought it back, the tanks were bone dry. Like the, there were, I don't even know. There must have just been enough in the fuel lines left because there was not a drop of fuel in the tanks, in, in e- either tank. And I, back then we were we were topping them off every time they came in, and I I topped it off. I put more fuel in it than what that plane is supposed to hold. <laughs> Jeez, oh, to, top, man. to top it off, with the warrior or the archer? It was the warrior. Ugh. That's a bad enough feeling when you pull into a gas station and do that with your car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that before. Truck's supposed to hold 15. I put like 15.2 in it. (laughs) I know, man. I know. I've got a 30 gallon gas tank in my Suburban and I put like 30, almost 31 gallons in it the other day. I'm like, oh God. (laughs) Yeah. Cutting that one a little close. But yeah, this guy. Yeah, cut that a little close. This guy just acted like it was no big deal. He just pulled it up to the tanks and he's like, thanks. See you later. Just walked away. Like. Holy crap. Well, and you know, he he may not even have known. Maybe he didn't you know. know. That's, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe he had no idea. Maybe he wasn't paying attention. But. I took off behind somebody once that, um, what airport was that? Might have been Burke Lakefront, but I took off behind somebody once in a jet and uh, we had taken on the icing fluid. And so uh, type one and type four, and this guy rolled out in a light single. I don't know what it was, but we just rolled out and we watched this guy taxi out and like we had taken type one and type four. So like we were ready. I mean, we had falling snow and we had yeah. equipped the aircraft to not have that crap stick to us. And we watched this guy roll out. And I remember thinking on the radio, like this guy's going to take off. Like I need to say something. He had, he had snow all over the wings <laughs> and I'm going, should I say something like, no, no, I, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. We watched this guy roll down the runway and uh, sure enough, man, he got up to like 30, 40 knots or something and everything blew off the wings and he just blasted. And yeah. we never read about him. So I'm assuming everything was fine. But yeah, yeah that like to your point, he, he probably didn't even know. He had no clue. No. Yeah. Clueless. Yeah. 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 It probably when it blew off, it was probably like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Sweet. We're a lot lighter now. Yeah. There, yeah. There's something wrong with the engine. The airplane's not. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> this is what shocked me because I, I grew up in boating. And boating's really bad as far as people having no clue what they're doing. Uh, my family has a, like a, a balcony and a high-rise condo down here in Florida. We overlook the intercoastal at this one relative's house. And we'll, I'll sit up there, you know, having a captain and coke and uh, just watching boaters on busy weekends sometimes. I just did it last week uh, with Sunday dinner there. And it was before dinner, we were just sitting there watching idiot after idiot on a boat. But it's a boat, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, because you got to really I mean, screw up on a boat. To right. be bad. Yeah. That's, there's people, there's some about, of those. That's how I feel about ahead. boating too. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll still take the boat over to a marina and just, I'll just yell to the dock hands. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you know, yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> but in a plane, yeah, you throw can't me the do rope. that. I do it too. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> As a former uh, dock hand on Kelly's Island, I've, I know there's a lot of that's, you out there like that. That's, that's where I, that's. <laughs> That's where I do it at. Every, every summer, I take the boat over there several times. And when I pull in, I just, I yell to the dock hand. I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're just like, it's but all I'm right. friends with Rob Berger, so be nice <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, it's all right. Just throw me the rope. And I'm like, all right. 
So yeah. it was somewhat, obviously there's a lot less in aviation, but it always just shocked me that there's anyone in aviation that's like that. Just where other people can sit around, like my dad has been boating his whole life. I grew up with his son, so I've been boating my whole life. So you get experience and it's fun. Just It's entertaining in the boating world because the stakes are a lot less. So you see mm-hmm. stuff and you're just like, what an idiot. What an idiot. You just find a good spot with a bunch of boats, like in a marina, watching people try to dock. It's just hilarious. Flying, you you see that sometimes. and It's just not as funny. It's not as enjoyable. It's like stressful to watch because it's like, good God, what are you? How did you get your pilot's license? Yeah. Yeah, it is, man. And that's one of those things too. Like when you get your instrument rating, it's, um, you, you can get a rating to go and fly with, we call hard IFR. So, I mean, you can go up and if you've got an Insta, an ILS approach, an instrument landing system approach at the airport, let's say you're even, you're going from point A to point B and they're a hundred miles apart. It's, you know, a half a mile visibility and a 200 foot ceiling at your departure and at your destination, you can go and hop up and go in that just because you've got an instrument rating and you might have 200 hours of flight time. Yeah. So you're rated to do it. The FAA says you can. And so you go and you pack your family into that airplane and you go. But yeah, you're, I, I can guarantee you at that, if anybody's listening and they've, they've done that, kudos to you for getting your instrument rating. That's awesome. Keep on training. But be aware that just because it's legal doesn't mean it's anywhere close to safe or you should be doing it. Yeah, that's a perfect point. Uh, We'll try to move this on. Part B. Uh, For any flight... Okay, Scott, this is for any flight. This means you now, Mr. Non-Instrument Rating. (laughs) For any flight, runway lengths at airports of intended use and the following takeoff and landing distance information. So this is, yep. uh, you got to know the runway lengths. It's how long the runway is. Yep. You've got to know your runway lengths, your, yeah, your landing distance is available. And then you've got to make sure that you can stop on, you know, I guess, like you said, any flight, Rob. So for a part 91 flight, if you're just out there flying yourself or your family, or you're not flying for hire, you just have to make sure that you can land the airplane within whatever distance they give you, you know, technically with, with no padding. So if you're flying an airplane, which, you know, the jets that I fly, relatively small business jets, on a dry runway, we can stop that aircraft on 2,600, 2,700 feet of pavement. So if we're not, fly- if that, you know, particular flight's not for hire, if I say, okay, my calculation says I can land in 2,700 feet, I can land on a 2,700 foot long piece of pavement, 2,700 foot landing distance available. If you're flying for hire, the requirements are a little bit more than that for pre-flight planning. Yeah. But yeah, you yeah, you're required to know that and then you're required to make sure that you that you can do it. You can stop on that piece of pavement. I forget what we've had this discussion in one of your times you've been on. You haven't been on tons, so I know if somebody was interested in that, we've we've delved into that. I think it mm-hmm. the title was the landing distances and what's required. Yeah, we went uh, pretty was, in depth on that one, yeah. I believe it was the last time you were on. So just look for that last episode uh Mr. Cochran was on here. So, Scott, you yep trying to do a huge hypothetical because usually you only go from 88 Delta to Norwalk or Kelly's Island, which is 89 Delta. Yeah. I forget Norwalk's identifier. I think it's 5 Alpha 1, I believe. 5 Alpha 1 is Norwalk? I think. That's right, yeah. yeah. So let's pretend you go somewhere else. Yeah. Why bother? What do you, What are you looking for? Well, you... What else you you have basically have the plane, uh, so you just get to Cali's. Nowadays, I would I you mean as far as like 
Airport information? Uh, are, get up on your mic. You're very quiet this episode what? for some reason. Oh, I must be too far back. Uh, as far as like the airport information, you mean? Like, what like am I looking runway for? lengths? Like, yeah, like I'll, how? Check, I'll check runway length. I mean, but I'm in a 150, so if it's, I mean, if it's a paved runway, I can land on it in Northern Ohio. Yeah, I mean, if it's any, if it's any runway, I can land on it pretty much in Ohio. I mean, I'm not up in Alaska or anything, so. But yeah, I mean, I'll I'll make note of the runway length. You know, obviously, if it's if I'm flying into Mansfield or something, I'm not really concerned about it. But if I'm flying into Kelly's, I am a little more careful as to what my altitude is on final. You know, but so that that's a gray area because I used to have the 150 and was flying the same area. Do I have to know like if I land there? And I fly into Port Clinton in my Cessna 150, and I get ramp checked. Your legal air is supposed to know exactly how long that runway is if they were to ask you that you landed on, right? Even though it, you could land, take off, land, take off like multiple times in a 150 on the runway lengths of Port yeah. Clinton, even though I can't spout out to the exact foot that those runways are. You know what? I would just say it's long your... enough. I'd just say it's long enough. Yeah, yeah I think that's. Probably sufficient, actually, if you're doing private flying like that. Just, you know, how do you know that you could, you know, how do you know that you complied with that regulation? I know I could stop on it. And I have data right here in this book that says I could. Yeah. yeah. You'd never get pressed on that. I, I no. don't think that's an enforcement yeah. action. But, like, fine letter of the law, it's saying you got to know the runway lengths of every single airport of attended use. Yeah. Yeah, you're supposed to. And I think that's like, you know, a lot of these regulations, the only time it ever would get pressed is if something happened. Yeah. So even in your 150, if somehow you found a way to go off the end of runway, what, 1028 at Port Clinton, you, then, then they would press that. But nothing would happen until something happened. Yeah. That'd be even hard. Even if something did happen, that'd be hard to, you know, something you can land decent business jet on safely. And you're in your 150. It's like, obviously, there was something else, which is why you yeah. went off the end of that runway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the times that that comes up, like, are, you know, you're flying a jet or something larger and you, you know, you were landing on something that was tight and there was contamination on it or something, or you were way too fast when you actually came over the end of the runway and you ended up going off the end. Yeah. As this delves into this, part B is broken into two parts. Part one is for civil aircraft for which an approved airplane or rotorcraft flight manual containing takeoff and landing distance data is required the takeoff and landing distance data contained therein and two for civil aircraft other than those specified in paragraph b1 the one i just read of this section other reliable information appropriate to the aircraft relating to aircraft performance under expected values of airport elevation and runway slope aircraft gross weight and wind and temperature so basically you're supposed to know at all times under those conditions, whatever your weather conditions are and your weight and all those factors you, you do in your pilot's operating handbook, how long it's going to take you to, to do that, to, how long it's going to take you to take off and land. Yeah, exactly. And I think there, yeah, some aircraft don't actually have data published. And I think that's where that's going. You know, the air, if basically they're saying if the data is available to you, you're expected to know it. Some aircraft just don't have the data available. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and then there, there goes the other available data. So, you know, that, I think that's another way of them saying that you need to be you need to be familiar with everything. Now, you know that that goes as well into like weight and balance. So, are you required to know exactly what the weight and balance state of that aircraft is when you take off and be able to show somebody? Like, I put four passengers in, and 
this is how much we weigh and this is where the center of gravity is. No. I mean, if you're flying part 91, if you guys are just flying private or whatever, not for hire, you have data in the book that shows that you could derive that information. So you would never have to actually produce that for somebody, like your specific weight and balance for that flight. And I think runway lengths, you know, how long is it actually going to take me to stop on that runway today? You don't have to actually have to make that calculation if you're flying just, you know, private flights. But if you're flying for hire, yeah, I mean, you're going to have to make sure that you can produce actually what the entire set of of numbers are for that flight. So hypothetically, there are people out there who believe you you have to have a weight and balance for every flight if you get ramp checked. So they like would keep a variety of different configurations in which they fly a lot, like different fuel amounts, different passengers, and they have a handful that they could grab the one that they're using right now to show if if they were ever ramp checked or something. Is that actually did that actually not happen in part 91 realistically or I'd never heard yeah. that. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, practically speaking, if you're flying part 91, you don't actually have to have a specific weight and balance. Okay. That's prepared. If you're flying part 135, you definitely do. Yeah, you absolutely have to have that. So, like, you know, in my my profession, so if I'm flying, you know, part 135 or or even 91k, which is like, you know, a fractional sort of equivalent to that, a lot of the regs are are very similar. Yeah, if you landed a destination under flying under part 135, you have to be able to produce your actual weight and balance for that flight. But part 91, you don't. You just have to have access to it. So if anybody's out there flying part 91 and you've got, you know, four people and a Piper Archer or whatever else and you landed an airport and, and an FAA inspector were to say, show me your specific weight and balance for this flight, you don't have to actually produce that. You have to have your weight and balance documents available, which can just mean whatever's in your pilot's operating handbook. Okay. So you'd have the means to do that, but you don't actually have to have it done for that flight. Now, should you know that your aircraft's within CG? Oh yeah. Yeah. But you don't have to have to, you don't actually have to say it's, you know, 23.2 inches aft of datum, you know, right, cause like you would for flights, 135. Most flights you you know if you're pushing the limits or not, you know. Yeah. I would think most of the time. I mean, if I go fly, I know if I'm not like full of fuel and taking a fat person with me, that I'm probably all right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're part 91, that's fine. I mean, you know, you're okay. You've got the data to figure it out if you needed to, but yeah. So I, I was always under the impression that was required to have that, but any, anything for hire, you have to have specific one done for that flight. If you're, yeah. I mean, if you're flying part 135, which yeah, would mean that you're getting paid for that flight. You're for hire. Yeah, you're you're required to have a specific one. And larger operators, you know, you're going to do that every flight. Not only are you going to do it, you're going to actually mail it into the, your email it into the company or something, so they have a copy of it as well. But yeah, you're required to actually you're required to have a specific weight and balance for that flight, where you can say, "This is what my center of gravity is on takeoff. This is what my center of gravity was on landing with that particular passenger load, with that particular fuel load, and everything." So. Before we wrap this up, we go back to the beginning to uh, where it says, each pilot in command shall, before beginning a flight, become familiar with all available information concerning that flight. Okay? We just, that was the end. We just read that the section B, one and two, that was it. So there is that catch-all at the beginning. Before we wrap this up, what are some other things that are part of all available information concerning the flight 
that could possibly be thrown in there that would be like realistic. Obviously, you could go forever and not you know on and on and on about all is all. Like, but yeah, what are some what are some big ones that aren't specifically line itemed on here? I think um in and this may not come into play so much in the, in the private world, flying light singles and light twins, but the condition of the aircraft is actually a big one. So um, any aircraft that has an MEL, so a minimum equipment list attached to it, which, you know, many commercial op, commercial, you know, type of aircraft do, whether it's a jet or a turboprop or what have you, the aircraft that are flown, like when you, when you get onto an airliner, um, seldom is everything on that airliner actually operational. There are pieces of that airplane that have been, we call it maintenance deferred. So it's safe to fly the airplane, but there are things that have been deferred. So the condition of the aircraft is seldom in like 100%. I just rolled off the factory floor shape. So thrust reversers on a jet, is the, is, is the performance of the aircraft degraded in any way? So when I actually go to my destination runway, are my thrust reversers working? You know, that, that's a big one. Is there anything that could compromise the potential safety of this because of the condition of the aircraft, which is totally legal? that I don't actually have access to now. Yeah. That might that might be something that would that would come into play. Yeah, that all available aspects. That could be in the in the small piston stuff, just is your annual up, you know, is, you know, 100 hours not required in in this situation, but if it's a rental plane, okay, do they they do they need 100 hours with the rental planes? I forget. Mm. I don't think so. I don't think with a rental aircraft. If you're doing flight instruction, they do. Yeah, with the rental plane, because yeah, sure. I do this the entire beginning. I had my own plane. I, I split it with the, I had half of one, half of a 150. So it was only three of us flying it. Most of the time when I flew it, I was the last one to fly it. And if I wasn't the last one to fly it, it was either Bob Angle or Rob Angle. Like that was it. And then now renting, I'm just like, I want to know, okay, when was the last time this was flown? I'm looking through that log book just to kind of see who filled it out before me, if there's anything I can glean from it, because it freaks me out. Just like random people flying planes, the plane before I did since like a mechanic looked at it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, what's happened? A, yeah, what's happened to it? Exactly. The aircraft is a big deal for sure. There, There is a um, something that, that I think people would... People would do well to, you know, acronyms are good, right? So one of the things that we use to, I think, to, in effort to try to be aware of everything that we can possibly be aware of, we call it aware. So we, it's an aware briefing. It's done prior to every single flight. So A-W-A-R-E, and it stands for aircraft, weather, airports, route, and extras. So when we talk about the aircraft, you know, what's the condition of it? Like you said, Rob, is, is there anything else that, about this airplane that's unusual that we need to know about today? Weather, destination, alternates, and route, just a general picture. The airports, um, are their runways closed? Are their taxiways closed? Have there been obstacles that have been put up someplace that have been notumed that you know are we don't know about? Like right at some of these airports, they might have cranes that are off the end of the runway. At the destination, um, let's say you're flying IFR, there's an instrument approach. It should have a 200-foot decision altitude that's now been raised to 500 feet because there's a crane out there someplace. Your route of flight, am I going to get my direct route of flight? Am I going to get rerouted? That would speak some to traffic delays. And then are there any extras that anybody can think of? And if you cover those in that aware fashion, you, you should pretty much hit everything. I mean, if, if there's something that's if there's something that, that reg would require you to know, realistically speaking, that's going to catch it. 
Yeah. What's an example of an extra? Like, I'm trying to think. I can't think of anything myself right now as an example for that. Uh, for an extra? Uh, it could be something like, I'm just trying to think of a good one. It could be, we probably already covered like departures or anything like that. So like an emergency return would already be covered, but uh, here's a good one, actually. How long have we been awake? How long have we both been on duty? Yeah. You know, that that's a big one. Like So like you'd put like your fatigue factor in there. So like a self-assessment would be part of that, which normally doesn't come up. Hey, we're both feeling good, but we're on, you know, leg, like for us speaking, like we're on leg uh, six of a six leg day. I'm tired. I know it. I think I'm safe, but I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Right. So that that's a big one. And, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this too. I, I've been, you know, fatigued to the point during my job. And I guess this could happen for people that are flying private. Like, you know, you're, you're going to do a night flight with a family to go on vacation and you got up at 5.36 a.m. to do your normal work routine and you're going to be flying from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. So, you know, you know you're tired. You think you're safe to go, but you're tired. So it's, a you know, an assessment of your your own physical readiness to fly that may come into question as an extra. I really hate to change the subject or cut this short, but... All right. I don't know where I'll cut this back in, but um, I think that wraps it up. Um, (laughs) This is the most weird sign-off ever. Um, Can I offer one more piece of advice to people out there? If we get uh, we have we have listeners that are looking for um, some some insight from somebody who's been doing this for a long time in all kinds of different environments. Yeah, I think it. I think it speaks to. in general, compliance with that regulation and, you know, some of the threat stuff that we were talking about. One thing that I've found that that's helpful is to always think about the next three things that are going to happen. So if I'm in flight and I'm going someplace, I have tried to prepare myself with all this information beforehand. But as I'm going through the flight, what are the next three things that are going to transpire? So, you know, pretty soon here, I'm going to have to start descending after I start descending, I'm going to be looking at destination airport weather. What's the weather like at that destination? Then when I start getting down lower, I'm shooting an instrument approach. Uh, what happens if I go missed? So I'm concentrating on what I'm doing right now, but I'm always thinking about what the next things that are going to happen. I try to think three steps ahead. But even if you're only one step ahead, you're better off than most people. So I'm doing an ILS approach down to minimums. What happens if I go missed? If I go missed at the airport, what happens if I'm flying a twin? What happens if I lose an engine? You know, so you've got those, you've tried to have what you're going, like it goes back to that example that uh, we were talking about of when I lost that engine coming out of Sandusky Airport. If at least you've thought about the next, at least the next step, but try to go a little bit farther than that. If I get down to minimums and don't see the airport, what am I gonna do? If I happen to lose an engine on a missed approach, what am I gonna do then? That way, if things start to go south on you, you at least have considered the possible, you you have at least attempted to put yourself out there in front. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to cap this off. Emails are a preferred method of communication. Mr. Cochran here can be reached at jackcochran at hotmail.com. J-A-C-K-C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E at hotmail.com. Mr. Boris is F-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com B-O-R-E-S 
And uh, my email is farim at robertberger.com, spelled B-E-R-G-E-R, the German way, not the sandwich way. Mr. Cochran, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's always good to talk about this stuff. I, You know, there's an awful lot to a lot of this, and it's good to pass information along to people. I mean, there are other professionals listening. That's great. But people who uh, are out there flying around, there's an awful lot that yeah, I enjoy talking about that because there's a lot that I think people can learn safety-wise from somebody who's, you know, who's been there. Been there, done that, and then maybe done a lot of things right, but wish that... I had done certain things differently, you know, so if I can pass anything along that helps people out, I'm happy to do that. So, yeah. I speak for the audience when I say we, we appreciate the, uh, the knowledge you bring to the show. Uh, until next time, everyone take care. Thanks for listening. See you guys. Thanks, Rob. Cut it out anyway. Uh, <laughs> I just got, your I audio is junk. I You're so don't quiet. Think I don't. I don't know why. I didn't change anything. Yeah. You don't have any. Do you have any noise or vents going on, making ambient noise that the software's trying to override and cut that out? No. Okay. No. We'll figure that know. out on yeah, another day. I don't know. I'm. I mean, I can get closer, I guess, but I'm. Where I yeah, normally get up, get up in there. <laughs> yeah, the radio, radio. <laughs> but voice. anyway, since you're cutting this out, uh, oh god, because it was like right after I had soloed. I don't know, maybe it's like the, a few yeah, months after. He's not a CFI, but he should know. No, the kid who just soloed shouldn't be. Yeah, because sh- right. Well, I mean, I guess. I should have checked it too, but I just assumed that like, cause he was like, let's go over to this airport. It was like some random like grass strip that I, I still don't know where it is. I don't remember where it was, but like we were doing landings over there. And like, well, I don't know. We had flown somewhere first. I can't remember where we flew first. And he's like, let's go over to so-and-so's place and do some landings over there. So I just assumed that like, if he's telling me, let's go do this, that there's enough fuel in the plane. But apparently yeah. he thought I had checked it, and I just assumed that like, since he's the guy with like twenty thousand hours, like he probably checked it, you know. <laughs> but yeah, and that just goes to show it can happen to anybody. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. All right, we'll cut back in here that I end up throwing in somewhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's all, I'm, that's all I'm having is three bush lights. Oh, you limited yourself? <laughs> that's all I brought in here. I have more, but... Actually, you'd have, you'd have to walk across the house to get to those. Yeah.
Actually. At least you know if you needed them, you could get them. Is there is it cold up there today? Actually, I still have a tiny bit. It of was chilly today, yeah. Of rum left. Oh, we talked about it. that. That that rum made the intro. That rum is what ruined my night last week. Oh god! And your clip was, was and Scott Boris brought the rum, and you're just like, I got I got rum. It's Jamaican <laughs> rum. <laughs> <laughs> that was the intro to this Poor guy. yesterday's show. Oh, I'm not listening to it. It's crazy I will, man. I, I will not listen to that show. Hey, have you guys ever had? You guys are both rum guys. You ever had Kraken rum? I don't yeah, like. Kraken I don't rum. like it. it. Tastes like black, rick, yeah, black licorice. It's too like. You scared me. Oh, did my mom bring this in? Is it pretty bad? It's pretty nice. You you haven't tried it yet. No, I haven't. I was actually, I'm not really too big of a rum guy, but um, I, the last rum I drank, Rob, it was that code, that stuff that you had brought to Lake that time. Yeah, that's good. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that is good. I keep telling myself I'm not going to drink a Red Bull, and then like I'll just be at work. Yeah, and caffeine is I'll hard just start to get off of. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah. I switched to the coffee. I feel like that's better than yeah. the Red Bulls. Coffee's hard on my. I only stomach, drink Red though. Bulls if I'm recording to, at that night, or I have to yeah. edit that night. Which so I drink it like five, six times a week. I used to pop the caffeine pills a lot, and yeah. I just I just had to quit thing. buying them because I just threw a bottle away because I didn't use it for like six months, and then I bought some for going to Florida because I was like, I might want some down there, you know. And yeah. I started taking them again up here, and I'm like, nope. I got up through the bottle away I'm like that's just that's just more addictive than alcohol for me <laughs> it makes caffeine you super, is more addictive than alcohol yeah yeah, yeah it's it like makes you more productive right it's like i can that's go from so like hard. feeling like shit and tired and not wanting to do anything to being like getting shit done you know but it's if not I, it if it didn't affect my flight the flight physical stuff i would say whatever i had to say to get adderall because i was on that yeah. as a kid Oh my God! That's what the, I've the heard movie Adderall, Limitless is based off of Adderall. That's what they I've made heard the movie that Adderall of. is similar to cocaine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like you can focus. It's like, oh, whatever topic you're interested in, you want to learn how to do anything. You can just yeah. sit there for ten hours reading like crazy, <laughs> like in-depth manuals on it, and it's like, oh, this is I'm retaining all of this. It's unreal. Uh, does it really work like that? Oh yeah, at least for me. Like p- different people have different reactions with it. Yeah. yeah, it was the only no shit. that was the only quarter I ever or semester or whatever it was that I made like I went from like barely passing every other semester. The <laughs> one semester I was on Adderall, I was like almost a straight A student because it was just school was so easy. Like it was yeah. just I could like the homework took like like ten minutes, which supposed to take hours, and just blasting through everything. I just retained everything. It's unreal. Nice. Awesome. Aviation would be my cool. life because I'd still be yeah. on that today if it wasn't for my flight physical. Yeah, they won't let you be a billionaire. <laughs> that actually yeah. sounds like a really good medicine for pilots to be on in general. Right? I know that's what yeah. I don't understand. Like they should allow pilots to take that. It's just going to help you be a pilot. It's not right. like some other stuff where it's yeah, but like everything that because basically ADD and they don't want ADD pilots. Right. That's one. That's why they don't allow. Only thing they they subscribe it for or prescribe it for. 
So right, but if you don't have ADD, it's just it supercharges your your intellect and your focus. Yeah. Well, they thought yeah. I had ADD, but they diagnosed any kid who just plays they, practical jokes and they gave it do to well a class. They gave it to a kid yeah, who a guy who that's works. a guy. <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody has ADD if you go like by the book, but yeah, uh, <laughs> a, yeah. A, he supposedly had narcolepsy, which I think he was just lazy and liked to sleep, but. <laughs> uh, but he got probably. prescribed. He got prescribed Adderall for narcolepsy. So yeah, well, that's probably another one that they're not going to allow you to be a pilot if no. you have narcolepsy. Yeah, if, you have no, if you're diagnosed with narcolepsy, you probably can't be a pilot. No. They, I mean, they, yeah, if, I think it should be a requirement that all pilots just take it. Right. It I if it, if it makes you that focused, I mean, that is something that's highly valued. Yeah. Right. Like you right. not space out while you're shooting an approach to minimums. That's usually good. You wouldn't take, miss anything. It's amazing. I used to take a uh, five-hour nice. energy right before every flying lesson. Yeah? Because it would keep me, like, focused, and I felt like I learned better and accomplished more. I don't know. A lot of people do Red Bulls, I've heard. Yeah. That's just caffeine and some, like, vitamins and shit, but I don't know. There's a lot my- of caffeine that goes in. That, that and honestly, like, so that and dip. I mean, that's huge, yeah. like in cockpits, like the nicotine infusion Yeah. for people to try to stay awake. The problem with that is it makes a lot of people jittery. There yeah. are a lot of people that swear by it. They're like, yeah, because it's an upper. You know, I mean, it makes you awake and alert. Yeah. Hmm. The taurine in Red Bull is the closest I've ever found to Adderall as far as like focus. It's nowhere yeah. near it, but it's the closest yeah. thing I've found. That's why I drink Red Bull like crazy. I would totally try it, man, if I didn't have to worry about a medical, too. I, after oh, what you yeah. said, I'd just like to see what it would be like. Like, right. just take one for a day and just see what happened. Yeah. yeah. You become a computer programmer. They, like, they say it's actually very As a similar. side hobby. They say yeah. it's actually very similar to cocaine. <laughs> but I, I've never done cocaine. So yeah, I, I yeah, don't know maybe. what that's <laughs> like, but... Uh, Obviously. Well, Denzel Washington did that in flight. Right. I mean, yeah. it yeah. obviously I helped think, his performance. I think we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, was, you explained it as a documentary. Yeah, you yeah, saw this documentary said, where this gentleman did something. We were talking we were about alcohol and flying, movie. and I said, all you have to do, I watched this documentary, is if you're too drunk, <laughs> just sniff a bunch of Coke, and then you're fine. <laughs> yeah, just do a line of Coke. I'm back. Yeah. I'm back. Call Holly <laughs> yeah. Bays, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You're up. Uh, you're up, slugger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is uh, terrifying, man. The first time I saw that movie, I'm like, I know this is supposed to be fiction, but you know that shit goes happens. on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude. And like, yeah, poor, like while he's talking to the passengers in the cabin, he's like pouring his vodkas into the orange juice like that, <laughs> right. like so nobody can see <laughs> yeah. him. Yeah. Man, you know that's going on. That It's yeah. so scary. With yeah. all, yeah, all the operations and all the pilots and flight crews oh, out there, it's yeah. got to be happening somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I know a couple of guys actually that have gotten popped for, um, for for randoms like i mean not like guys that are <clears throat> that are not like drinking on duty like denzel was in flight but guys that drink Went way too much before. at night and just yeah yeah and they don't know how long it takes for that shit to go away and so they end up getting the random at you know eight nine ten o'clock in the morning and they're still at 0.05 0.06 yeah, yeah. but dude it happens yeah it's yeah. a tough lifestyle man I, especially right. with like the stress on people i think and well right and you're yeah. in, like if people are smart they get away with it yeah, you got overnights in different places. You got nothing to do, so a lot of guys probably just go to the hotel bar and drink or whatever. Or, you know, drink in the room. Yeah, yeah. You know, because like eight hours bottle of the throttle. That's 
that's good for like if you had a few drinks with dinner. If you've right. like tied one on, eight yeah, hours you, is not enough. Yeah, if you slammed a bottle no. of liquor, eight hours ain't gonna fix it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, exactly, man. No, it goes away like it um it goes away at about point oh one five an hour, no matter like yeah. who you are. That you can drink coffee, you can do Red Bull, you can do anything. It goes away at point oh one five an hour. So like I mean somebody like like Rob, like somebody like your size, like if you drank six beers. It could take twelve hours for that to go completely away. Yeah, yeah. After you start drinking the beers, so like yeah, man. I mean, like you know, if you go do eight or nine shots, like at you know nine o'clock at night, you'd still blow positive at one o'clock the next oh, afternoon. Yeah. Scott and I did Crazy. shots last time we hung out. That's a bad idea. Oh God, <laughs> that was Always a bad decision. A terrible decision. Every time I do shots, I just black out, and then we just... we talked about that last episode. <laughs> Uh, oh, your, your three rules for florida yeah yes no shots with bob me right yes <laughs> no disney and no, no disney. rental car yes yep i'm never renting yeah. a car I'm and just going... try to go to disney without doing shots it's a it's a necessity <laughs> right i'm never going to disney again anything to do with disney uh you're gonna end you're gonna end up taking your rental car to disney and doing shots there that's no happen. well if i end up with a rental car <laughs> rental car at disney i probably will do shots <laughs> no, dude so they know it disney actually we time, i but... we've been there you were probably there a few times pre-covid though weren't you or were you there uh, just once pre-covid and then this time we just went to that like downtown disney that disney springs but like yeah it, it was crowded and it's overpriced and like they make you wear a mask outside and they like enforce it and shit. And it's just like, I can't stand this. Like, I just got to get the hell out of here. Like it's too many people Too everything's overpriced. It's like, why are we here? You know? Which, I don't, yeah. I don't blame you, man. We we've yeah. gone a lot of times. Never, never post COVID. We were supposed to, we got our trip, our last trip canceled. Like we were supposed to go two weeks into COVID and they keep, they closed all the parks down. Yeah. They're strict, but Disney's no. strict. They're crazy. It's ridiculous. But I'll tell you what, though, man, they do have that whole alcohol thing figured out. They know the adults need it. Like if you go into any place except the Magic Kingdom, there are those little tiki bars set up everywhere. So like, you know, you you can drink at breakfast, then you drink at lunch. And then like they've got tiki bars everywhere because they know the adults are going to need like three stiff drinks every two hours they go on. Yeah. When I went there. (laughs) Just to make it through. (laughs) When I went there, God, it's probably been six, seven years ago. They didn't have alcohol in the park anyway. Right. No, they, just, they've. I think they've come to realize that like yeah, it's a necessity. Like, like people right. stay a lot calmer. I probably wouldn't have minded it so much, but just like waiting in line in crowds of people, like you couldn't get on anything, and like everything else is overpriced, and it's just like if there had been alcohol there, I might not have minded it so much. But yeah, yeah. Well, it you, makes the adults a lot more docile. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I didn't know Chuck E. Cheese had a. Oh yeah, it's great. Alcohol and, there, and their pizza Until, is oh, they actually do. their pizza is actually pretty good. I my Russian buddy invited me to his kid's birthday. He's inviting a bunch of us to his kid's birthday party, and everyone's like, "Uh, we don't. I don't know if we want to go to Chuck E. Cheese." And he's like, "No, no, they have they got a bar now." So we're like, yeah. "Oh, it sold everyone of our buddies down here in Florida that he was trying to talk into going." And so we all go, and he's Ukrainian. And uh, his his parents are there. His his wife's either Ukrainian or Russian. Her parents were there. Like his in laws. It's just, it was like 
bottle service of vodka bottle service at Chuck E. Cheese like at our table. Yeah. They were just ordering <laughs> bottles of awesome. vodka. I don't know how they got it done. And everyone's just shooting vodka because they just drink it straight. So Oh. Okay. It was, nice. It was, nice. I, don't know what, I don't know what the kids were doing, but there was a bunch yeah. of people partying, shooting shots of vodka, vodka. in the corner at this giant table they rented. I went That's one awesome. time. I love I, it. I, I had a great time. I drank beer and ate pizza, and I found this game that was like similar to a slot machine, and I just played that. And yeah. it was like, it's a good time. Pretended you know, like you're good. gambling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Scott's playing like, like he's the... in Vegas. Yeah. But yeah, you have enough. Yeah, man, the one that's local to me, they uh, they serve beer there and the same shit. But they the last time I went with my kiddos, which is a while ago, they they serve beer, but they'll only give you two per ID. And I was really? like, is this? An, yeah. And they're like, I, I'm pretty sure the last time I was here, I had like four or five. And they're like, that's the reason why we <laughs> limit it now to two per, per ID. I'm like, parents, well, <laughs> too many parents getting drunk. <laughs> so the well, bottle yeah, exactly, service man. is, I guess, uh, a thing of the past or? Was that a weird thing they worked out? Uh, they must have be. gotten it figured out. I don't know, man. I, I think, uh, yeah, who knows whether it's Chuck E. Cheese wide or what, but Different maybe it's just the one that I probably. went to. They, the lady told me that they got a, two parents got into a fight. Like two dads were drunk oh, and I think the oh, kids geez. were. <laughs> yeah. No, my kids first, my kids first. And both were like right. eight or nine beers in. They're like, yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, Maybe it was just because their, their culture, they're like, we don't have parties unless we have vodka. We can't have it here. It's part of our religion. <laughs> right. It's the religion of Russia. Yeah. Makes sense. So it kind of is. Yeah. So maybe so they made an exception, and that's why. That's right. why we got the, a, the vodka bottles. Yeah, it is part of their religion. I mean, the average life expectancy of a Russian man is like fifty-six now. So right. I mean, what, that's yeah. is this for a reason? Yeah, it's pretty low. We actually it's pretty, it's, we're yeah. charting like top like two in Russia for aviation. That's probably why, because we're always drinking. They're probably like these guys. But maybe. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're we some are. of the smartest drunk guys that I've ever seen, man. Like pretty much every Russian professional that I know is really smart, but like they're I mean, I'm sure hopefully the pilots aren't drunk when they're doing their job, but like they're some of the smartest people around. But I swear you catch them after one PM and somebody's slurring their speech. Yeah. Yeah. You had Russian every, every roommates day. in college, didn't you? Yeah, I had uh guys across the hall from me that were Russian, and that was one of the worst nights of my life when I first met those guys. Oh yeah. Oh, dude, I've never gotten drunk so fast in my life. I think in under like 10 minutes, I remember walking in, we were doing shots of some of their stuff they got from the motherland. And it turned out that it was like 120 proof. Oh. And I had to have like, and we, we were all shooting at the same time. I must have like eight shots of this stuff in like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I remember walking in at like 5.55 PM and then like 6.07, my roommate was dragging me out of there and I had no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. You can't, you can't keep up. They have a whole strategy though. Like I was talking to him, um, one Russian buddy I know, and he's like, oh, you got to eat this and only eat this. I forget what all the stuff was, but it's like you, you don't eat all of this stuff while you're drinking and you only eat this kind of stuff and you do this kind of stuff. And it was all this, it was like a strategy they were running. Yeah. And I'm like- Oh, that's you know, sounds, and they. If, I guess if you kind of follow this, because I was trying it a little bit, and I like, okay, I drank more than I could have normally drank, and I felt pretty fine because I wasn't. They don't mix it with anything. They eat certain foods. They stay away from certain foods while they're drinking. But yes, like, they've like got to figure it out. Science to it. But like, what's the mm -hmm. point? Just so you can drink more? Like, that's it. 
I love the vodka, Scott. <laughs> what do you say? We would have been all over this stuff if we could figure it out back oh, in the day. Oh, of course. But like thinking just about for, it now, just it's for the like, fun of out drinking people, right? But thinking about it now, it's like <laughs> I wish my tolerance was lower because then I would just have to buy less alcohol. You know, why yeah. try to drink more? Well, the thing is, if you get in the mood, like you and I get together, right. it'd probably be good to yeah, implement strategies. If there was a strategy us... to keep me from blacking out, that would be yeah. preferable. Yeah, good strategy. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think that's why they drink shots, too, because they know exactly how much they've had. At least the Russians I drank with, they didn't have any like mixed drinks or they weren't oh, like free yeah. pouring it, you know? It was just like, oh, yeah. You know, so they knew exactly. When I was in if Ukraine, I, do, uh, I was I was teaching them stuff to mix vodka with because they had no idea. Like they 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 didn't have no idea, but a lot of them I was drinking with didn't weren't familiar with mixing vodka with stuff. I'm like, you can mix it with OJ and it's delicious. You can mix it with Sprite and it's delicious. You can mix it with all this stuff. Yeah, in the morning you mix it with OJ, and then as you go through the day, you mix it with right. other stuff. Yeah. yeah, then by night you just drink it straight, <laughs> uh, straight out of the bottle. Yeah. No need to dirty up shot glasses. Exactly. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, let's start an episode, how shall we? Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Doing 91.103 preflight action. Scott, you you made okay. it very clear you always have it up last I episode I, uh, when I mocked you for wanting to know what we're covering. I always have it pulled up. Okay. Let me see. How do we, how do we intro this? Do you have a do you have a direction you want to take this, Cochran? Because I'm kind of shooting from the hip. Do you want me to read this or? Yeah, if you want to read the the reg, kind of my my initial thought when I saw that yesterday was that it's something that um, not a lot of people take seriously, especially if they're not you know true professionals that do this for a living. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to read that through, um, we can talk about like what that you know what what's actually required. Like so, what's a pi? What's a flight crew or a pic actually required to be familiar with? Yeah. And then I figured we could take it uh, from there into like how we recognize threats. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, um, some of the. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say we could because we could take that easily from there into like threat and error management. I've found that there are a lot of people that don't like they're like, OK, so I have to have access to all this stuff. But how like how do you guys actually recognize threats that are going to happen on a given flight? And then what like what tools do you use to mitigate that? Okay. Yeah. So, repeat, repeat all that when when we get it. That was, that was a good, good thought process. And we'll I won't read it all the way through. We'll just go section by section because the long, drawn out reading everything straight through it seems to make people makes people go to sleep. So yeah, uh, I think I fell asleep last time. You did. You were very <laughs> interactive, like interrupting. Constantly, yeah. and then about halfway through, you just just stop oh. talking. Yeah, <laughs> and then we just as we were signing off, giving email addresses away, we uh, was like, "Yeah, Scott would say uh, goodbye and thank you for the review, but he's asleep on his desk, so he's not." Gonna you say hit anything. critical mass. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. All right. 